and we had lots of fun and we had lots of, mm -hmm. we tried to have lots of fun away from what my kids are good at. Mm -hmm. and, and I just think that's what a harbour is. You, or safe uncertainty is treating the kids because you love them, not because, so I love my children and they play sport. I don't love my sporty children. And I don't think any parent sets out to just love their children because they play sport. But I think sometimes parents accidentally communicate that to their children. And that's why we're seeing some mental health challenges with young people. You're about to listen to an interview for EWS, intending to provide educational information from various domains in psychology, physical exercise or motor learning, an experienced professional joins in the conversation with our funnel, assisting EWS mission of building a mindset and methodology that can optimize both sports performance and mental health. Enjoy, and for that, I leave you with your host, Gonçalo Marques. Hello there. Today, on this expert interview, we're here to talk about parenting. You know that EWS is here to assist athletes, coaches, and parents, and this last part on this area, we want to enrich our podcast. So, I found a perfect fit. He is a non-perfect dad called Richard, and he entitles himself like that. He also formed an institution with this name, and uh, to give more time and energy for child development and better outcomes for child and athlete development. And I talk about outcomes here, as Richard says, about non-perfect dad on the UK, But I should start by giving a tweak on this about outcomes, uh, prompting you also to the content of the conversation. See, he mentions outcomes here, but it's on a broader scale. It's not just about having success on winning, winning. And speaking of winning, we go also to that place on the podcast uh, talking about the potential risks of having winning as a top value, on the top of a hierarchy, let's say. Because we don't consider winning, especially at younger ages, as a good metric for the value of an athlete or of a team, for that case, if we make it a stretch, or not as a big stretch even. And it can also lead to some conditionalisms, as you have been prompted on the teaser in the beginning of this episode. So, this intro will continue and will be a little bit longer than usual. You can always skip out to the timestamps at the description of the episode to jump to the pieces you are most interested about. But I ask you, as I feel this very worthy of mentioning, to stick with me for the next few minutes. As Richard tells on the homepage of his website, to which I leave the link in the description, Non-Perfect Dad, as an institution, is enabling coaches and parents to work together to produce winning character on and off the sports field. Because when the home and coaching environments, in my opinion, are united, an athlete is given the best possible chance to excel greatly in all areas of life. And for just a bit more, I would like to keep paraphrasing as I'm doing here from him there at the website because this goes on to building again the stage for the value I myself found during this conversation 
and onto sharing a main topic on EWS uh, that we want to enlarge on our episodes, serving more the parents and not only athletes and coaches. Because you see, parents are the, or better I say, can be most probably the most influential figure in one's child life as a youngster. Parents help the child to build a solid sense of identity and to instill values for a desirable character. The sporting realm, indeed, in formative years does that too. So a challenge on optimizing this immense influence emerges. Not to mention that sometimes there's an unease in the relationship between coach and parent. Without a synchronicity of approach between parents and coaches, potential is easily missed. And among several points that are presented on the website, I highlight that one of supporting the parents in shaping the resilience and mindset athletes need to navigate the highs and lows of talent development and managing expectations around that. So good. <laughs> really, you will hear me along the interview utter some interjections like these, uh, so good or so much that, as my sort of excitement couldn't be contained. Only from these short snippets I would have gotten a big wish to invite him onto EWS for sure. However, I got even more thrilled and found him as a precise fit for this conversation on parenting issues and guidance from talks I've seen him giving on other podcasts, starting from the Sports Psych Show, hosted by renowned sports psychologist Dan Habrams, to which EWS produced a post of the week like two weeks ago on an episode part from there, by the way. Wait, just a useful reminder. We know you're investing precious time here, so you can also efficiently work your listening experience by checking the timestamps at the end of this episode show notes. You can click over them to jump directly to the pieces that you find most interesting to your needs and wishes. As for my wish, your review and subscription to EWS Podcast. By doing so, we will be able to offer the listeners more quality content regularly to improve the mental game in sports and work. Until you decide on that, keep enjoying this. But back to our guest today, and then prompting you finally for the start of the conversation. Richard goes into schools and sporting institutions to help them with a parent engagement strategy. He also delivers parent engagement sessions to sporting organizations such as the England Rugby, England Hockey and England Cricket, helping parents to be reflective on their parenting approaches. So from here, just from this uh, mentioning, just as an important little note, you can see that Richard doesn't do the business of imposing his views. He's not idealistic with his messages. And alongside this, promotion for reflection onto parents' par practices, there's this simple wanting to share what might serve to a rich and healthy development for children and pointing to what might be more inappropriate or unadaptive. All in all, these engagement sessions are also fantastic for coaches to think about the way in which they engage with their players. Richard has also written a brilliant book called Conversations for the Journey, 40 Ways for You to Build Sporting Character, 
that offers parents and coaches 40 ways to have conversations around mental skills that move away from the habituals. Did you win? Did you score? Were you player of the match? <laughs> This is all I got from him out on the web. I cannot promise we will go through like the 40 ways to make your child a better sports person because indeed we ain't gonna make them perfect or molded to an idealized image of our own. But I hope I've spiked enough of your curiosity and a wanting to share this with more parents you might find in need. As much as I consider this episode a clear essential one for the EWS library. So let's go through a conversation with the aim of optimizing parenting practices and interactions. And for that, I'm delighted to welcome to EWS podcast a proud, non-perfect dad, Richard Shorter. May it's great. Gonzalo, thank you so much for having me on here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. I think clearly this is, this is going to be an essential one. And for a starter, I want you to talk a little bit about yourself, but mostly about what set you started on this path of consulting at sport clubs and developing the Non-Perfect Dad project. Well, I'm, I, you know, an accident. I landed up here by accident, I think. <laughs> so I've spent 20 years working with parents in lots of different contexts. I'm a, I'm a church minister in the UK. So I'm the Reverend Richard Shorter. That's my full title when my mum writes to me. Um, and I do that in quite a deprived housing estate in East London. But for I've been here 11 years. I've been working for 20 years with young people. And my first degree was in youth work, youth and community work. And I realized very quickly how powerful parents were in the impact of outcomes for young people. And so as a young 20-year-old, Like lots of young 20-year-olds, I was naive and thought I was going to change the world, but I noticed that the parents of the young people that I was working with had a bigger impact. And I think that started me slowly turning a wheel of trying to offer more dynamic, cohesive work with young people that partnered closer with parents. I then worked very closely with our social services. Is that Does that translate into Portuguese? Mm -hmm. Do you have social mm -hmm. services? Yeah. They're like the local authorities who, who look after children in need. And uh, I delivered a lot of their parenting courses for them. So I started a little church where we are. Uh, and so I've seen the really sharp and ugly end of, of child protection issues, of, of working with parents whose family life is very chaotic. So you might ask, well, what's that got to do with sport? Mm -hmm. And then I started a little business, Non-Perfect Dad. Non-Perfect Dad because no parent is perfect. And, and if I was going to be a parenting coach, I certainly wanted to be honest straight from the word go. My three awesome children who are also non-perfect, would tell you very quickly that I am not a perfect parent. Um, uh, my kids are all into sport. I love sport. I've played sport all my life. I'm still trying to play sport just by injury now. And, um, and I was thinking, where are dads? Mums traditionally come in higher numbers to parenting courses involved in schools or social services. So I was asking, where are dads? And I, I said, well, dads are standing with me on the side of the sports pitch. Why haven't I thought about doing stuff with dads on the side of the sports pitch? And so I, non-perfect dad, I suppose, became a sports specialist. Um, I guess when you've got 20 years of working with parents, you know how to speak to parents in an, and use the pedology that, that helps change behavior. You use behavior change that doesn't work all the time. Um, but certainly I, I'm trying to use the best behavior change science 
mm-hmm. to help support behavior change for parents. And maybe, sorry, I, I guess not even go from out of the go to behavior change, but to sensitize and educate for some issues and aspects that uh, parents are not um, looking through them uh, in their interactions in in their relationship with uh, with their children. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I reckon, and I think the research bears this out, that most parents are well-meaning. I mean, you do have some, you, you do get, meet a nasty parent, but they're few and far between. You meet well-meaning parents whose behavior they are unself-aware of. I mean, I'm a massive fan of trying to help people be self-aware. I'm mm-hmm. not completely sure how you totally help people be self-aware, but I'm a massive fan of, of helping people be self-aware of the impacts that they have on their environment and the impact the environment has on them. I think that's self-awareness. If you understand who you are in the room, who others are in the room, and how the room affects you, that's a great foundation for self-awareness, really. Um, and I would add, why did you enter the room in the first place? And, and I think when it comes to sports parents, like anything else, we, we get into a rut. No, rut's the wrong word. We get into a set of habits. And... And parenting is not easy because parenting is constantly dynamic because the child is constantly developing Mm. and the child is constantly facing new challenges. So parenting is always dynamic. And so I think as part of a safety and a coping strategy, parents develop a rhythm of habit that helps parents deal with the uncertainty of being a parent. And therefore, as the sports world then has to ask themselves really good questions about what habits are we helping parents develop and what habits are we helping parents maintain? And what habits would we want parents to be having in our environment? And, and always asking those from the point of view of what gives the kid the best impact here. How do we help this child get the best outcomes from being part of our sporting environment? Now, that's a real challenge because if, if a coach, if a sports coach or a sports psychologist, if their understanding of the best outcomes is a gold medal or a league-winning football team, then those habits for those parents will be different to more developmental orientated goals and settings. And that's part of the challenge that we have. We live in a society that only really values gold medals and first places and winners. And we we have a society which I think innately knows that process is more important than results, but everything in society is results focused. So all the advertising about the latest diets are all results focused. Um, all the advertising about, you know, you buy this, you buy this kitchen, all your friends will think you're amazing. And then you have this kid and, and parents who live in the world and the context and culture we live in are already comparing to one another, wanting to be the best, worried about what people will think about their child, how will people perceive their child. And so those type of habits or those type of thought processes yeah. then intuitively control the the habits that we have and that can have massive impacts on the outcome for the kids. So for example, if um, well, my mum, <laughs> my mum, bless her, she used to think she was judged by the way her children behave. Now, that may well be true. She may well have been judged by the way we behave. And we were quite interesting children at times. But that isn't, that should not be a deciding motivation for how you discipline and control your children. Because what you land up doing then is teaching people that your pride is more important than anything else. And how you appear to other people is more important than anything else. And that, and speaking for myself, you know, I've wrestled with my self-esteem all my life as a result of trying to work out what other people think of me. And now I'm in my early 40s. I know it doesn't matter what people think of me. Or, or, or if it does matter, that's their issue and not mine. And I need to work through that. So in the sports world, 
if losing is a big deal for a parent, then the way they respond to a child losing will be different than the way they respond to a child who actually worked really, really hard, didn't give up, was really competitive, tried some new trick skills, put into place some of the mental skills that they'd done. One parent would consider that a win, even if the result doesn't say that. Another parent would consider that a loss. And the reality is the child will pick up, I have failed, if the parent communicates that accidentally. Yeah, that's just one example, one big example of uh, a thing that is said because... Yeah, you mentioned all those things that could be a success during a match. For example, maybe the team dominated the match and still lose. But um, then you have those reactions and you start to have the value of the child, of the person uh, conditioned. And we don't want that. And yeah, this is always uh, a potential context, uh, the sports context vis-a-vis the educational part to be filled of expectations of more demands that parents put on their child's uh, through their sports practice and wanting the child this is a common one uh, more and more often said but I don't know if understood well because this is uh, very much unconscious but the wanting the child to fulfill some personal frustrated dream and uh, that can be toxic in some ways and well i'm i'm just building on what you told us in that big good introduction we can go through unpacking uh, many of these and let's continue big and you touched on that uh, part of uh, what can be a success what is defined as a loss per se what we should focus on And uh, regarding winning, winning and losing, this is a big theme and often common messages we see from parents to children after, after a match day, for example, uh, is regarding this. Did, did you score? Did you play the full match? Did you uh, were man of the match? And this is all performance related uh, aspects. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the first thing to do if, if, If you're a coach listening to this or you're a sports psychologist listening to this, it's just to ask, just look at the messages that your club is sending your coaches. So one of the things I challenge organizations to do is if they have a Twitter feed, look at your Twitter feed. If your Twitter feed is full of results, then why on earth are parents going to talk about anything other than results? Mm. I mean, it's just you, society talk, talks parents talk about results. And then if your environment, if your coaching environment, talks and focuses on results. That's all parents are going to talk about. You are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'll go into lots of environments, whether they be premiership football, rugby, uh, premiership uh, football clubs in the UK, premiership rugby clubs, um, national governing bodies, national teams. And I will see some brilliant environments that make it very clear to parents what their focus is on. And that creates a bit of a, a mini crisis in parents' minds because they're thinking, hang on, we thought this was all about success, but now this England coach or this... Uh, Premiership Football Club coach is saying this isn't about success now, it's about laying foundations for success later. And what does that look like? So I know Premiership Football Clubs that will play their football boys or girls against teams that are two or three years older than them, but do not have the same ability. And they will prep the children. You're going to lose this game. This is going to be a tough game. We want you to have a tough experience. Here's what we want to get out of it. Now, that's, I think that's brilliant coaching. If done well, 
I mean, it, it could be a disaster if done badly, but if done well, that's brilliant coaching. That's that. Sorry, that just to to emphasize that that question is key. What do we want to get from that that match, that tough experience? Totally, but the but where sporting organisations often fail is in effectively communicating that with parents. And the key for mm. me is the word effectively. So they might have a meeting at the beginning of the season, and they say, "Parents, we're going to stretch your kids. They're going to have some uncomfortable experiences. Um, winning isn't everything here. We're about process." You can't just say that to parents once and expect them to adopt that as a mantra for the next eight-month-long season. You are failing parents. But I will meet coaches who go, oh, Rich, our parents. Oh, we tell them every year. We tell them every year we're going to stretch their kids and cause them problems, but they don't listen. And we still get emails about selection and we still get parents being win-orientated and things like that. And I just, I get, I get, that's when I get frustrated because coaches forget that their environment needs to be very countercultural. And especially if you're changing culture and we live in a success, uh, a points-driven culture, we need to then be better at communicating regularly, um, supportively, sometimes quite challengingly to parents in ways which help them move out of that. So for example, if you've, I mean, it's very difficult now because we're in a global pandemic with COVID, but, it, but if you're in a game where you're going to be stretched and you're going to deliberately stretch the kids, you need to get the parents together after that training session and let the parents listen to the prep talk that you give the kids. Great, great session tonight, guys. I like the way we worked on this, this, this. That's what I want to see you work on on Sunday or Saturday because we're playing this team. We know we're almost definitely know we're going to lose against them. We don't mind whether we win or lose. What we want to do is see you do this. They're bigger kids. This is why we're giving you this experience. We'll support you through that. Parents, on the, and then you look at the parents and you're like, parents, on the way home, I want you to ask your kids, how did they do in X, Y, Z? Um, so you're really forcing the narrative of being purpose-focused, or process-focused, sorry, over results focus onto parents now of course it's still parents individual choice whether they pick that up you can't make parents have that conversation but you can do as much as you can and a one-off meeting at the beginning of the season where parents feel good about it but don't take it on is not 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 enough it's not enough we have to shape our environments um, to support parents thinking about this in healthier ways and what i find um is is that parents want to think like this this is not You know, some parents do just want their kids beasted, shouted man up, having sergeant major experiences. But most parents want their kids to develop. Most parents want their kids to have good processes. Most parents want their kids to be competitive over winning orientated. Nothing wrong with winning, by the way. I absolutely, you know, winning needs to be a significant part of the sport experience. But I think being competitive is a more significant part of the sport experience. And, and when you talk to parents, they agree with this. But then the emotion of sport happens. Coaches don't reinf uh, coaches reinforce the alternative message accidentally, and so we land up with confused parents, um, and and worst of all, those conversations that those parents have with their children then leads to disconnect, and that reduces outcomes for young people. Yeah, and two things that I picked from that is uh, firstly, uh, I, I recalled some Facebook and Instagram pages I've seen from some local clubs here in Portugal, where <laughs> this is a menace of the 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 social networks because we see the stories there that meant are that are meant to be quick and what they put there are often the goals that some players scored and those significant moments and they are 
good to to watch for for a, a watcher for for sure but uh, maybe and i i believe that some of these clubs uh, having uh, psychologists and uh, pedagogical teams around that might want to instill and stimulate these things that we are talking here but then on the social network there's a mismatch and yeah it came up to my mind a good idea would be some episodes from training some uh, principles that the coach wanted to instill with that practice or that interaction or something yeah that would be great that would be more of a match uh, that we want from there or even kids doing a, a, a match report you know, uh -huh. getting the kids to do a match report or getting the kids to talk about what they've worked on training. Parents love their kids on social media. Social media isn't going away. So we need to use social media. Now, you need to get permission to put put kids on social media. Sure. Certainly in the UK, you do. You can't do that. But, uh, but parents love seeing their kids making videos. So one school I went to had the privilege of going to work with in Dubai they got their kids every three or four weeks to make a video from training about what they'd been working on to show mum and dad. And, and the parents loved it. And this was in a very win-orientated culture, you know, Dubai, banking, lots of money, success-orientated and defined by winning. But this school had done a great job at trying to offer an alternative narrative um, through the voices of the children. So, yes, social media is here to stay. There's nothing wrong with putting scores on social media or great goals, but if that's all you put, that and I think that's what all I'm saying. If it's all you talk about, I mean, one of the things I never see a school do, I never see a sports club do, and I go on about it, but I've not yet to see it, is they never talk about the kids, the rest of the kids' lives either. So a kid might have got a certain music grade in an instrument or been a part of a school play or got an award for something that wasn't to do with the sport. I've yet to see a sports department or a sports club go, we're really proud of who this person is. They're a great centre forward. They're a great goalkeeper. But do you know what? They are also really good at this. And we don't celebrate the whole person. And, and that means that parents then don't celebrate the whole person. And we know that if athletes can play musical instruments, have diverse lifestyles, have diverse interests, it helps them get better outcomes from the sport process. Well, what you just heard was something probably easy to understand. But to assimilate this or put it into practice is a harder task for sure. At EWS we aim to translate the theory and mental principles into practice the best way possible. But it all comes down to you. Take a moment to really reflect. Is this good for me? What can I do today to implement it? Again, the keyword practice. How can you translate this into practice? Practice it and go ahead. Keep enjoying the process of efficiently working sports. Sure, sure. And again, just to to clarify, we are talking like winning is secondary and in some sense it is for us but uh, it's a natural thing for for any pe person to to want it we are drived to to win um but these things this also reminds me of the uh, process oriented uh, ego oriented versus um uh, sorry process uh, and mastery oriented versus ego and results oriented and this is this is one this was one of the themes from my master thesis 
And related to that, there's uh, also some Portuguese uh, scientific stuff going on, uh, re relating that to like the uh, motivational climate that is instilled from coaches and teammates in in their team culture. So we want uh, players to to be more driven to develop themselves in the skills in sportsmanship, uh, uh, character. Uh, things and uh, that's more important in a, in a way for long-term development and to translate to other areas of, of life and another thing that we want to consider is not to uh, put away that results-oriented motivation that can give us some energy but also consider that these character and mastery things will lead more probably to wins because if we play well if we improve on these things from this tough match against these two or three years older guys we can be more prepared to be successful uh, to score more goals and suffer less in the future so this is pretty much all related yeah i mean i think Like I said, I'm not against winning. What I want is really competitive kids. And to be competitive, you've got to want to win. You know, so so I think if kids don't care about the outcome, that's really sad. Then you then but the outcome might be different. The outcome might be they've worked on a skill for the last three months and the win for that game is that they're going to use that skill in a match successfully because they've worked really hard. Um yeah. Uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, you get You get your team gets beaten really badly. It hurts, and and that's okay. Sure. You know to experience that and move on. Yeah, but and the thing to build up on this, um, and bringing parents back into it because parents want the kids to be more happy and more successful in their practices, in their matches. If they win more, the better. Um, and this always comes always or almost always with well-intentioned um, attitudes uh, and uh, messages for the children. But one menace, a big menace that comes from this emphasis on winning over losing or over playing well, whatever, is that these comments may devalue a poorer performance and attach the value of the person, of the child, to their athleticism. Uh, to the result more than the athleticism because the player could have played better uh, and better than the opposition and still lose as we we've said before so this is this is big stuff for me well and i think that's i think that's part of the challenge for parents is parents think they have a talented 13 year old who's who's had their massive growth spurt before anybody else and so their heads and shoulders above anybody else look they might be good at their sport no one's taking that away but the what is giving them the winning edge at the moment is the fact that physically they have developed quicker than everybody else in their peer group and the likelihood is that everybody else will catch up and 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 so that means they'll have a season of success so if it's a i don't know take, take rugby which my son's involved in mm -hmm. you know some of the big kids in that would score lots of tries and be very successful because they were big kids And that has to be well coached and well supported by parents. Otherwise, and I think that was probably my story. I was a rugby player and I probably rested on the fact that I was big and strong earlier than most people. And so I got away with it. I didn't have to develop good technique. When everybody else caught up, 
I actually didn't enjoy it that much. And looking back now, I know why. It's because I had it easy, and then I had it tough. My, my own son is a rugby player. He's not big, mm-hmm. but he's, he's a good rugby player, and he has a lot of success. He's now playing field hockey with me for the first time in his life. He's not having lots of success. He's actually really uncomfortable and not enjoying it that much. And I'm, and I'm trying to help him enjoy it, but in some ways I'm also really pleased about that because for him, he's starting at the bottom of the ladder compared to kids who have been working harder. Uh-huh. It's a really good experience for him to have to work through that. The challenge is how do we as parents respond to that? Do we blame the coach? Do we blame the system? Do we make excuses? Um, or do we just rest on, oh, don't worry, you're brilliant at, at the other sport, rather than thinking, what can you learn? So, it's, so there are some uncomfortable conversations happening in my house at the moment that I'm trying to get right, but I'm pleased he's having that discomfort. It's good. For, I can see in five years' time where this will be good for him, but as a dad, I've got to help him cope with that discomfort today because uh-huh. teenagers won't worry about five years' time. Teenagers aren't going, oh, great, in five years' time, I'll be a better human being, and that's, and that's a massive challenge. Yeah, that's so good, man. Because, yeah, first of all, bring the uncomfortable ones conversations first. Because, uh, yeah, we could be focusing on what's not in our control. That's why the rugby example is perfect. Because many times the bigger and stronger ones will have more success in this time period of 12, 13 years old. Uh, But we can emphasize on the qualities the your son or other player has in the moment what we can build upon those uh, because the, the size is yet to be controllable so this is a big topic the controllables versus the non-controllables and uh, yeah developing resilience around that and many times uh, sorry just to include this this comment um, parents can focus as you said on things to diminish the discomfort produced by a loss or by not being able to compete at the same level in that time by blaming the system by blaming uh, the other kids that might be older but in their id say they are younger or something else and they can just be encouraging and saying oh in some years you will catch upon that and uh, X and Y, but more more small, you see, uh, the comparison. And yeah, that 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 really touches me, man. Well, I think I think the role of the parent is quite interesting in those moments, isn't it, really? Because in some ways, a ton of that stuff is the coach's job. And this is the real challenge for parents. Where does your job start and stop and where does the coach's? And of course, there'll be overlap, but there'll be difference. And I really love the Barry Mason stuff about safe uncertainty. I don't know if you've seen that. But- Barry, sorry? Barry Mason, Safe Uncertainty. Um, it's a psychological tool to help people kind of move forward and understand where they're at. And it's brilliant. And he, and he, he kind of divides the world into three groups. Of course, there isn't three groups. There's always more than whatever. But huh? he talks about safe and certain, where everything's very structured, very safe. You feel psychologically safe, you're physically safe, but also everything's very certain. There's no change. And it's the sort of thing that, You know, it's the sort of thing that sometimes grandma does because grandma doesn't like change. So you've got to have special holidays done exactly the way grandma does because that's the way we've always done it. Kind of nothing wrong with that, but it's that very safe structure. And that that structure provides an immense level of safety, but it doesn't provide much room for growth. The other end of the spectrum is unsafe and uncertain. And that's really chaotic. You're not safe um, 
psychologically and physically, and you're you're not certain of what's going to happen. It's it's all chaos. So I equate that in the parenting world to to children who have alcoholics or addicts as parents. So they might come home from school and they don't know which parent they're going to get. Are they going to get drunk mum or drunk dad? Are they going to get sober mum and dad? Are they going to get itching to act out mum and dad? And that's a very unsafe place. And that's a very dangerous psychological place for a kid to be in. What Barry Mason proposes, and, and then I think his work backs up this up, is that the, the healthier place is to be in safe uncertain. So you are safe psychologically, but the outcome is uncertain. And I think the role of parents after those type of events is to help your child feel psychologically safe, but not shut everything down into certainty. So your kid doesn't get selected for the team of their dreams or gets stretched and has to go to some trials for a, a professional sports team. And that's a, that's a real challenge. So you don't, you don't just say to them, oh, you're amazing, you're brilliant, you're wonderful. Mm. You actually ground your praise of who they are into reality. You, you, you give them that safety model. So I talk about home being a harbour. I think home, the, the sports parent provides a harbour, but a harbour is never, you don't keep a boat in the harbour forever. The boat comes into the harbour, it's safe, it's restored, there's a bit of work and activity on it, and then you send it back out into the open sea. And that's, that's what I see my job as a parent. And I realise when I make mistakes as a parent is because I haven't offered enough love in that moment. Mm-hmm. So, so my challenge for my kids in that immediate moment is their psychological safety but then I offer the uncertainty of going, I'm just wondering, what might you do different next time? Who might you talk to? I wonder how coach would help you progress like this. So, so if I was in a safe and certain model, I'd be like, oh, the coach is rubbish. The ref was terrible. You were brilliant. You're perfect. Don't you change? But that doesn't really help kids develop. If I was in an unsafe and uncertain model... Every time a kid got in the car with me after sport, they wouldn't know are they going to get angry dad, calm dad, results-oriented dad, uh, process-oriented dad. But safe, uncertain dad is a dad who says, I love you, and offers that love and support, and together we work through the uncertainty. So one of my children this weekend was really angry about the outcome of their sport. Really angry. I'm not really... Now, I'm good at dealing with grief. Crumbs, I'm a church minister. I take funerals. It's part of my job. But the anger part, I'm not... That triggered me in a way that I hadn't expected it to. And I realised that to keep my kid in this uns- sorry, in this safe, uncertain place, I need to not try and fix their anger. I need to be okay that the anger doesn't have an obvious solving sorry an obvious there's not an obvious way to heal this anger in this moment i just need to let my kid be angry and love them and then help them have boundaries so so it's not like i just let my kid do anything but but i but but i'm helping them grow and i'm growing in that and that's just the best thing for both of us yeah so good yeah because uh, overall you by being I, i like that term safe uncertainty because then the kid will be i imagine prepared uh, capacitized to to face some more adversity to keep keep keeping the struggle in a good sense to be open to challenges Well, I think, I mean, what we've seen in, in lockdown, you know, I, do some, I have this privilege of doing work with premiership football clubs and I do a lot of one-to-one work with people. And just what lockdown did was lockdown threw us into 
in some ways an unsafe, uncertain environment for sport because you had kids who were doing sport all the time and then their sport was taken away from them and their sport was part of their identity. I am a footballer, I'm a netballer, I'm a basketball player, I'm a rugby player. And all of a sudden COVID kind of took that away from kids. So they felt unsafe. Who am I in this? And it was uncertain and it's still uncertain in lots of sports. I don't know what it's like in Portugal, but in the UK, it's all very interesting right now. And it was uncertain as to what's going to happen. And so no wonder kids' mental health suffered in that and no wonder parents' mental health suffered in that. So, what, you know, I worked with Premiership Football, a very famous teams that are known all around the world and some of their academy kids were not playing football they had no motivation to play football they had no desire to play football and I had the parents going oh no this is horrible I'm like no this is normal that's what you do when you're unsafe and uncertain you shut down to try and protect yourself and 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 so some kids worked too hard um to try and make up for hard time and some kids just shut down I'm like that so it's okay now let's try and motivate them and help them your love can give them a safety that will help them start to play football again or start to do a little bit of training as well as the coaches as well. And it wasn't that the parents weren't loving their kids, by the way. It's just that we have to communicate that love in a way that helps kids grow. And often in these times of tragedy or challenge, mm-hmm. it's the work we did six months before that helps kids get through it, not the work we do in those moments, although it's never too late to start doing things. Wait, excuse me, before you continue on for the episode, I will just ask you for a review. This is a common request, I know, and I imagine it can be tedious to do so, to divert now, and I am aware you as a listener just want to grow through. However, if you do so on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, it makes an important contribution for EWS growth and for us to keep providing relevant contents for you to actualize your sports practice and mental game and also for me to be able to continue to bring in great guests. Moreover, each month we randomly select their two winners to receive exclusive material that will assist them reaching their full sporting potential. Also, it is important for me to hear your feedback, so head over there please, the links are in the description as always alongside with the timestamps. See ya! Uh, that was one of the things that w- I w- would like to bring up, the COVID situation. And I'm um, jumping towards it. I-, I think that is a good thing to calm down parents and the the children the sports uh, in the sports-related issues per se. Uh, but still, it can be a worry thing to, to address because... Uh, uh, it can lead to more giving up and uh, i'm not saying with this i'm not saying that we should stimulate and be be strong on them to be resilient and continuing on because it's a good time to uh, to reflect upon the reasons um but yeah can you develop some more about uh, some um like some advice in this situation for those cases of lower motivation? Yeah, I think motivation is a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, a lot has been written about motivation. I, I, think, I think firstly, you, you need to have a good routine. You've got to have a routine. So a number of the kids who lacked motivation were playing Xbox all day, getting up when they wanted to, going to bed when they wanted to. And that, creates and in and in the young people I work with who aren't 
in the sports world, but in the kind of normal world, those who struggle with motivation, it strikes me, struggle with routine. And, and I think the second thing is about helping kids do good goal setting. And by good goal setting, I mean realistic, honest, step-by-step goal setting. So there's no point in a 14-year-old saying, I want to be an astronaut, so I'm now going to be motivated to do my science work. There's nothing wrong with a kid saying, I want to be an astronaut, but, but they need to know... Then you need to unpack that. Okay, so what does an astronaut need to be good at? Let's go and research some astronauts. Let's make a role model astronaut. Who, if you could be an astronaut, which astronaut would you be? Okay, brilliant. Then let's read up on their story. Let's listen to their stories, get inspired and excited by their story. Then let's work backwards. So if I'm going to be an astronaut, I need to be really good at maths, really good at physics. I need to be reasonably fit. Okay, then. So as a 13-year-old, what can I do? Well, I can't get a doctorate in maths and science now, but I can do. I can make those subjects my main focus i can i can commit to doing 15 minutes extra work on maths and physics now and i can commit to finding out about the portuguese space program or the british space or whatever it is that's that's my goal um and i'm going to start and i can keep stepping towards that um and so what does an ast- what does a 13 year old astronaut work on well an astronaut who goes into space is really calm under pressure and collecting under pressure. 13-year-olds aren't, so that's okay. So what I will do, though, is next time I'm under pressure, I will journal or draw or I'll ask my mum and dad to talk to me about how I handled that and how I can handle it better. I'm not expecting, a thir- as a 13-year-old, to have the mental skills of an adult astronaut because they are trained by very clever people. And I think that's one of the massive dangers we have in the world at the moment is, like you said, we've got parents. I don't know that I mean many parents who are vicariously living through their children. Um, you know their their own broken dreams through their children. What I think we have a problem at the moment is the adult adultification, adultification mm. of mental skills in young people. And I notice that tension in myself. Look, mate, I go I go to some of the best sporting environments in the world. I go to some of the most famous sporting environments in the world. I meet some really famous coaches and some really famous athletes. And, and I'm like, I want my kids to be like this because they're good people and they've got good mentors. I want to be like like them in some cases. So how do I stop myself? projecting that expectation of mental skills onto children. I'm going to write a blog about this soon, but how do I stop myself projecting the, how would you say that? It's adultification. That's the right word, isn't it? Of, of, of mental skills onto young people. So my son wants to be a rugby player. So he did some work with someone about visualization and, and, and it was brilliant. It wasn't with me because it, because you can't always do these things with mum and dad. It was a really good rugby coach. And the, the, real, the outcome of that was, I want you to think of your favorite rugby player in your position, start watching YouTube videos of how they perform and start trying to mimic it. Now, you're not mimicking it 100%, but you're just starting to try and work through that process. So I think, and then I think, um, uh, Jordan Peterson recently, I watched an interview with him about motivation, and he showed some interesting stuff about university students about writing to yourself about who you want to be when you're older. And so I get, I think if we can get kids to write to yourself, this is who I am as a 40-year-old. This is who I am. This is what I'm worth. Not where I want to be. So that's not I want to be an astronaut or a footballer or a policewoman, whatever it is. It's where, who do I want to be as a 40-year-old astronaut, policewoman? And apparently that's very motivating to think about the type of human being you want to be because that does motivate you to engage in that work a bit more. So, so I think, but I think good routine. One of, I mean, I'm, I'm not a perfect parent. But in COVID, what we nailed as a family was strong routine and then strong reflection on that routine. So we had a sheet of paper. To start off with, I thought we'd have one nice family routine. Well, that went out of the window. We had like, because there's five of us, we had five routines on the door. But every Friday, we would then look at that routine and we'd go, what worked this week? What didn't? Why? 
what can we do better next week? We're not expecting perfection next week, but what would be your lowest score this week? Our times tables, reading, morning meditation for us adults or whatever. Okay, then what did you score yourself? I've probably got a three out of 10 for that this week. Okay, next week is a new week. What do you need to change to get a four out of 10? And don't just say, I'll try harder because that doesn't give you anything. What practically can you change to get a four out of 10 next week? Or maybe a five. I think motivation is quite slippery. I think motivation is quite fog mist, like it can come and go. But I think there's lots of things you can do to help it Uh there. And I think the other thing I think I just want to say about motivation is teenagers are teenagers. Their brain kind of drifts in and out of different Uh tasks at different times. And that's totally okay. Yeah, yeah. Totally okay. And as a dad, I struggle with that sometimes. But it's okay. And I, I, I think if we look at some of our favorite professional sports stars, they are struggling with the outcomes of COVID. I mean, I don't know what it's like in the Portuguese Football League, but in the English Premier League, the scores and the results are all over the place. It's a very, very unusual season. And I think that's because you've got these wonderful human beings who are trying to make sense of their world and still be professional athletes, and it's all a bit topsy-turvy. So if if Liverpool can lose 7-1, or whatever it was they lost last week, when I still think I'm not a Liverpool fan, and I still think they're probably the best team in the country. If Liverpool can lose 7-1, then it's okay for our kids to have a bad COVID week and a bit of a poor motivation thing going on. Yeah, that's so good. I see so many aspects, good aspects there. That one of relativization, of validating uh, some youngsters' experiences and habits and being gentle as well as disciplined with uh, with them, building those routines. And that is... Uh, part of i guess the the safe and certain harbor you want to to provide them and and we and we had lots of fun and we had lots of, good, we tried yeah. to have lots of fun away from what my kids are good at mm-hmm. and and i just think that's what a harbor is you or safe uncertainty is treating the kids because you love them not because so i love my children and they play sport i don't love my sporty children And I don't think any parent sets out to just love their children because they play sport. But I think sometimes parents accidentally communicate that to their children. And that's why we're seeing some mental health challenges with young people, because whether it's good at academia, music, sport, COVID has taken away that identity. And that's what their parents reinforce so much. And so now it's tricky. So so for me, that safe uncertainty is about us just mucking around, having nothing conversations, going camping, playing doing things outside of my children's normal identity yeah like cultivating other interests and this brings me back to to one thing that i was almost forgetting to mention a thing that i've heard from you that is often on groups on parents of parents you you pose the question how many of you agree that the biggest lessons in life came from failure or adversity or disappointment and many of them uh, bring their harm up and then you ask so why do we just celebrate winning and this <laughs> this brings so many considerations uh, one of those uh, we touched upon it uh, the the conditional pride issue and uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about that well and uh, well the other question i ask is have you told your children those stories so your, your biggest lessons in life have come from mistakes. Have you okay. told your children those okay. stories? And very few parents have. Now, I know some of those stories are pretty gory and you won't want to admit to your child that your biggest mistake was a drunken night out when you were 20 and that there's details in there that you shouldn't okay. be telling a child. But but I get pe- when I have parents and kids together, I'm like, parents, tell your kids 
the biggest mistake that you can tell them about at this age that you've learned from. And parents go bright red and they tell embarrassing stories and kids love it. They absolutely love it. But you can see connection. You can actually see between parent and child through the sharing of these embarrassing stories and this honesty, you can see connection grow. For me, that's safe uncertainty. Um, I think... Yeah, I asked that question because it's, I think it, well, there's lots of research out there, isn't there, about how we grow more through mistakes than, than through success. And um, so cleverer people than me can talk about that. But I, but I think that for me, the, we, we become ashamed of the things that made us, and that is not helpful. We should delight in the things that shaped us. And so, yeah, I tell my kids the mistakes I made. And and some of the stories I am, I'm ashamed that that was me, but that helped make me. So I won't be ashamed of the story, if that makes sense. And, 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 and I think, uh, I just think in society, we, we've, we've lost the storytelling. And in the Western world, we've lost, we've lost the role of the elder in the sense of um, we don't have such strong cultural stories anymore. We don't value our cultural stories as, as strongly anymore. And, and that means we, I mean, stories are such a great mechanism for handing on cultural lessons about failure and success. And when you look at indigenous groups who still tell good stories, they're not all about success. They tell the gritty story and they tell them really, really well. And so, and so if we can help our kids be good storytellers or be good storytellers to our children, and that often is speaking to grandparents, letting grandparents tell good stories because there's stories from a different generation off, offer a good reflective mirror to ourselves. Um, look, parenting's busy. It's hard work. So you have to be very intentional about how you do storytelling. So I take all my kids camping every year. Each child comes with me for a couple of days. They get to choose what we do. Obviously, I spend lots of time with them through the year, but that's their quality time. And 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 this year through COVID, we, we I nearly had to miss it with two of the children. They were devastated, which encouraged me. And every year, we will tell the story of what we've done on the previous year's campings and the mistakes we've made and, and what we've learned. And it's and it's um, like the first year I took my son camping, we went to a castle and I bought him a sword, a, a play sword, a plastic sword. Then we put the tent up and he's stuck the sword through the roof of the tent on the campsite, just basically cut a great big hole in the roof of the tent. <laughs> he was five. He's 15 now. He still loves telling that story and how we problem solved and how we got around it. So I think, I think if we can get part of that harbour thing is telling the story of the harbour, but it's also giving permission for your children to have a different harbour. Hey, you, athlete, student, or worker of some kind, we want to know real cases. So tell us, from what you've heard, what have you been missing out? What is one idea that popped into your mind while listening? Feel free to share in the comments so we can assist you further. See ya! Good, so much that. And uh, <laughs> that brings up the exception, acceptance part and the emphasis again on the process over the results because, yeah, having the tent broken up, it's... It, it might be bad in the moment but it can be fun like telling the stories and emphasizing on the on the problem solving as you were saying that is a skill a set of skills that are were promoted there and i was about to say that i've heard this quote from some coach i don't i can't mention his name exactly unfortunately but we only lose 
if we lose the lesson, there is to win. So picking up on this storytelling, we only lose what was inside the story if we don't tell the story. So that's a great reminder you posed there. And I, I thank you for that. Yeah. And um, continuing on this uh, process orientation and uh, celebrating more things uh, um, beyond winning, um, you 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 talk about the importance of mapping out some famous players' uh, struggles and stories again uh, of their ups and lows to show this non-linearity in the development of whether it be technical sports uh, aspects or in more character-related stuff. So uh, we want, it's like we want to prepare kids for the journey, right? And uh, can you mention some more ideas uh, to to add on this? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it links back to the storytelling, really. If If you don't have good stories, tell other people's stories. And you don't even have, they don't have to be real people's stories. I like stories from books or films. You know, Harry Potter's a great story. There's good stories in there. It doesn't, but I think, I think there's something very powerful about helping kids realize that how they think this is going to turn out is not how it often turns out. So most people will dream success comes with the path of least resistance. That's that's quite normal. You know, it's the Disney prince princess thing that success will, I'll get good at this, then I'll get selected for this team, then I'll get selected for this team, then I'll get selected for this team, then I'll make it in that team and we'll win loads of stuff. Um, I think by telling good stories about former athletes, so I try and use lots of interviews with different people. Um, so I, I'm trying to talk to more parents of famous athletes so that we can hear what the kid was really like and the struggles that they really had. So there's a couple of very famous rugby playing brothers in this country who are gladiatorial in their ability to play rugby. But you listen to their mum speak and you realise that they're quite fragile psychologically in certain areas, which is normal and there's nothing wrong with, by the way. But kids won't have that perception of those players. And so I use that clip of their mum going, they didn't like that. that. They felt bad. To try and say to the kids, well, how would you feel in that situation? How would you think differently? What can you learn uh, from this story? Sure, sure enough. And uh, another thing that you are a big advocate of is uh, the posing of questions. Uh, I've mentioned in the intro about your book. And uh, can you talk a little bit more about that before I, I present the the first big question I selected for us to, to talk about? What's the importance of questions and when, how? For parents, uh, just to clarify, for parents to 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 pose to their children, yeah. So I wrote a book. I, well, I wanted to write a book, and I wasn't quite sure what book to write. And it, it became obvious listening to young people talking to young athletes that, that those conversations they have with parents, they really valued, but could go really healthily or not healthily. And then when you talk to parents, you heard the same thing. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to help parents have forty outlines of conversations that would help them be process character focused. I use the word character, but you can replace that with mindset or whatever. Process mindset, character focused, rather than, as you alluded to earlier, did you win? Did you play the whole game? Because, um, but I also wanted to ask questions because I think questions give you space. They they don't get, you know, you're not 
giving the answer. I mean, my kids will often laugh at me if I have to make a point to them, tell them off about something, make a speech about something. They'll be like, who comes dad making a speech? I was like, yes, you've got to yeah. listen to me for three minutes. <laughs> I know you're not going to remember any of it, but I've got to get off my chair. It's like indoctrinating or putting some more yeah, pressure. Exactly. And, but my kids laugh at me because we all know it's not going to work, but as, I just need to get it off my chest. Okay. And if you can ask a good question that stimulates thought and thinking around new topics that you can loop back around to and offer praise for and and fill in help your kids fill in the gaps i think i think that's just i just think great leaders are really good at asking questions when i when i look at people like barack obama um nelson mandela you when you see them being interviewed by people and and talking to people in their peers, you notice how good they actually are asking questions. These are people that I would just sit and want to listen to all day. But if they were there, they would be, see, I'm not a great leader. I haven't asked you any questions yet. They would be, they would be great questioners. And so I, so I wanted to kind of draw into that and, and, and see the value of good questions to help lead kids and parents into new space that's safe uncertainty that where is the new space in the conversation that we can have and so uh, conversations for the journey is literally that conversations for the sporting journey or the journey to and from sport um and what i've been blown away by is how many coaches have said wow these questions are great i use these questions as a coach so it's not just parents it's impact i never wrote it for coaches i just wrote it for parents but coaches use it and and seem to get a lot of value yeah. for it um Yeah. Yeah. Just, just to have a taste, a key one for me that you have there is what do you want from me? <clears throat> Sorry. What do you want from me on training or competition day? And uh, for that, can you share some of the most common answers you've heard to that one? And, and uh, one that was most, the one that was most surprising or unexpected? Wow. That's a great question. So my youngest daughter doesn't want me to ask her questions. So I run this business I travel all around so the biggest surprise is my daughter my daughter thinks I'm asking her a question because I'm practicing a question for a new book so my so when my daughter's a gymnast she's brilliant I love watching her I don't understand gymnastics so I understand I understand team invasion sports really well but I don't understand gymnastics and um she doesn't want the questions and it's her sport and so I want to honor that because I want her to want to be involved in sport as long as she can so she doesn't want the questions we ha we do have conversations later Um, what are most things kids say is that the kids say that they they don't want to be talking lots in the car. They they want to choose the music. They want to go and get some food. They want to chill out. The most things that kids tend to say is, can I chill? And parents need to hear that because after sports matches, parents' emotions can be quiet. They don't want to chill. They want to analyze. They want to problem solve, whatever. Most kids want to chill. Some kids will want analysis, will want support. But I think that has to be driven by the kid's agenda, not the parent's agenda. So if your kid says, actually, I'd really value your opinion on how I played, I would still ask that as a question. Oh, you asked me to tell you how I thought you played. Well, you tell me how you thought you played. What could you do better? Oh, mum and dad, you haven't told me how you played yet. Well, do you know what? I'm going to wait till I'm going to wait a couple of days, see how you continue to reflect, and then I'm going to tell you. You know, because I'm not going to let my kid's identity on their performance rest on my viewpoint. Yeah, um, so but good. most kids seem to say they just want to chill. Yeah, it's like a, a collaborative discovery guidance process in that uh, conversation because you're not, again, you talked about the overlapping of parents and coaches uh, in their interactions. And I believe this is one where parents should not uh, impose their views on on some decisions in the match or something else because that's the coach's job. And uh, it, it's good for, for you to tell 
to to redirect the 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 questions for the children and only you are the opinion you are in the opinion of only when they bring the theme up not the parents to 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 start the conversation is that it am i right on these things i think i, th I think i never want to say always because there might be those mm -hmm. moments where a parent needs to say i'd like us to talk about that i wouldn't talk about it on game day But yes, I think it needs to be child-driven. Unless the child is saying, pack my bag and, or pay me for scoring. You know, I think kids should pack their own bags and I think kids shouldn't get paid by their parents for scoring. So if a child comes up with that, you want to say no. Um, but the other stuff, yeah, I, I just, I think sport is a community act and a community event and children need to be mindful of their coaches' needs and their parents' needs in it. But ultimately, the child's needs and wants, we need to be so mindful of those because that will keep them in the sport world. And the longer we can keep more kids in the sport, the better that is. Yeah, yeah, so good. Uh, <laughs> another good question to be asked, and I don't know if there is some similar one in your book, but uh, is what do you want your child to get out of the sport experience? This is a big general one. And I want to ask you a corollary of this. Uh, so what do you want parents to want to their children to get out of the sporting experiences? Did you get that? <laughs> It's a hard Yeah, one. what do I want parents to want their kids to do? I would, if, a, if parents came to my sessions and interacted with me through social media and whatever, I would want parents to want their kids to get great enjoyment out of it. Enjoyment slightly different to fun, by the way, but I want their kids to get great enjoyment out of it. I'd want their kids to have a passion for lifelong activity. And I'd want the kids to have a lifelong passion for giving it a go and trying new things and exploring self-development. And I think it's the parents' great privilege and opportunity to you can significantly... To be in that role. That. Yeah. So, uh, to have that role on their... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're the most powerful people in kids' lives. It's as simple as that. Yeah, so good. And that brings me to mind, uh, before I jump into my last question, um, an image that I've seen you presenting on another interview and that was uh, a deer. We have to imagine here because I guess we will not have visuals for this audio episode, but it is a deer or an elk in the road, uh, an image uh, of a road with uh, some um, bushes and uh, green nature things around the road. And can you talk about the analogy there? Yeah, so I, I ask coaches, this is one I tend to use with coaches, I say, what, what do you see? And most people say a deer on the road. And, and, and I, when I first saw that photo, I was like, yeah, it's a deer on a road. And someone said to me, isn't it, isn't it more accurate to say it's a deer crossing, sorry, it's a road crossing a wood? And I was like, oh, yes, it is. But we see our narrative. And that's the problem with parents and sports coaches is that we tend to see our narrative. And sports coaches tend to forget how much is going on in a parent's life. You might have a kid who comes to your sport club twice a week. But that parent is juggling that kid at school. They might be juggling siblings. They might be juggling elderly parents. They're juggling work. And so I use that analogy to remind coaches that, that you just see the road. But actually, in the whole parent's life is this bigger wood that's been there the whole time. And, and trying to have compassion and empathy on parents comes for me from understanding there's a wider context. Look, some parents' behavior is unacceptable. I've got no problem with saying that and calling those unacceptable behaviors out. But we have to remember that the context is always more complicated than just, are they getting this child to training on time? Why not? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so much that. Like we have the road always in front of us and with them uh, and not always uh, being focused on the uh, the elk and the sports-related stuff that are going on in their clubs or their practices and they have their teammates and themselves and the coaches to discuss that. Um, yeah, pretty much that. So good. And to finish, I usually ask uh, my guests to... Uh, talk about a uh, big number one thing to efficiently work sports practices. But with you, I feel, feel more prompt to ask you if you have a number one thing for efficiently work parenting while in a sports context. So my, my number one thing for efficiently working with sports parents, I actually did a video on this this morning, so it's a good job <laughs> you asked that question, is, is you've got to genuinely care about the parents. You can have a really good parent engagement program, but if you don't care about the parents and their role in that child's life, your sports parent program will just be about telling parents off, keeping them at bay. You, you, you need to, as an organization, genuinely value the contribution those parents make to that kid's development because it's significant. And it's not going away. And so many sports organizations I meet really hold a grudge against parents and really don't like parents. And so their sports engagement smells of that. It smells like that. And look, of course, there's still going to be some success in that parent engagement. But, but for me, genuine parent engagement needs to listen to parents and have great empathy and sympathy with parents so that you your work springs from a place of wanting everybody to get more out of this, not wanting to cage parents away. Yeah, so good. Or or even being a, a plus one factor of pressure to be a better parent and have them in our idealized image again, because that's a menace that might end up uh, on these uh, good teachings and practices, I guess. Yeah, we, we, we cannot, I said earlier, we can't expect children to have adult mental skills but we've got to remember all adults don't have perfect mental skills either no you know i'm not non-perfect dad for no reason i am a non-perfect yeah, dad because that yeah, would lead to more perfectionism in a, yeah, I just, in a how weird parents and it's weird because coaches parents expect coaches to behave perfectly as well so so we've got to help parents understand that that doesn't happen we've got to help coaches understand that parents aren't going to be perfect So you have to protect yourself and have good, healthy boundaries there and value parents, and that'll help you move forward. Yeah, so good. Richard, do you want to talk a bit about your resource that you build up, Sports Parents Alliance or something else you are working upon? Yeah, I mean, so Sports Parents Alliance is an online sports community for parents. We have about a thousand parents in there now, which is really exciting. Uh, there's some courses on there, a new course I've done there, Best Season Yet, which is uh, 10 conversations for parents and children to have together to help kids have their best season yet through helping parents understand the controllables, help to parents to talk about um, how to deal with COVID and things like that. Because I still think we can see children have their best season yet of development, even in this post-COVID world. Sports Parents Alliance itself is free. Uh, just Google it, come along. I put different bits up in there every week. It's really there just to be a support and encouragement and nudge to help parents just keep working on those parenting habits that help develop great kids. 
man, what I highlight from this conversation. And uh, <laughs> I had some more questions and conversations prepared, but uh, this was pretty sufficiently good for me and I guess for our listeners. We went along the the rhythms, the different rhythms some different parents and childs have in their development, not only in the sports-related uh, stuff for them, but also uh, in their person and how... We as parents can be dynamic with that and be responsive because this is a big conversation on character uh, building um, characteristics and skills. We, we need to be more open to hear their experience. We need to uh, have a posture of reflective listener of being a reflective listener, of accepting uh, those hard feelings that might come up and not only being harsh to those or correcting those or being just uh, cheap encouragement and being like the the faithful uh, entity for them to be a great player and someday they will win more because winning was a big topic also here. We don't only want to win, we want to be process-oriented and I stress that out uh, very much on other episodes on my podcast and this was a clear, a big emphasis uh, on that also. I'm glad for that and I thank you for all the rest and I hope to keep hearing from you and seeing your stuff because it's almost perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, um, it's been a brilliant conversation. I really appreciate you having me. And yes, I, I look forward to carrying on this conversation together. Thank you for listening to this EWS interview. To see more, go to ewsport.eu. If you want to open up a discussion about some topic address, reach out by commenting below or leave a message at ewsport.eu. Hope you enjoyed. See you on the next one. I remind you that you can write a comment right there on some podcast apps, on our Instagram at ewsport.eu, or even by sending a quick voice message on the clickable link I leave right at the end of this episode description. If you prefer to stay anonymous, this is a good option. All simple and free. So take the time to do so and take a step to be closer of efficiently work your sports practice. Until then, take care.